Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the Korean miniseries School Nurse Files based on a novel by Chung Sarang. Jung Yoo Mi stars as An and Young, a school nurse with the power to see jellies, supernatural entities that represent people's thoughts and emotions. With help from a fellow teacher and some of her teenage students, she solves various mysteries. So this is a request from Nicole. Neither of us had heard of this show before. Um, obviously, there's a lot of Korean dramas that have really made it big in the West, but this is not one that's carried over, although it is a Netflix production, so it is available internationally. As is the case with our kind of Patreon requests, we typically don't have time to watch like the entire series. Um, so we've watched kind of three to four episodes. And uh, gosh, it's an unusual one. I was kind of watching it like, this, this is really strange, but I'm just going to kind of like Google to see if that's the general response. Because sometimes like you're like not picking up on stuff culturally. And all the responses I saw from other people watching the show were like, yeah, it's pretty unusual. <laughs> because although the concept of sort of supernatural high school drama is like extremely common and appears in <laughs> numerous cultures worldwide. This one is kind of removing itself from a lot of the more familiar genre tropes. It doesn't kind of explain anything. It's a lot of the time kind of based on new supernatural stuff the author of the novels thought up rather than any particular mythology. One thing I would say is that like surreal dramedies are a lot more common in Korean TV than in the US. Like there's a lot of kind of rom-com shows with a paranormal element which is not something we're used to seeing in western media so it does feel more unusual to like western eyes than perhaps a korean viewer but still yeah quite a strange show to watch but i think you enjoyed it right morgan yes i agree that it's extremely weird but i found it very fun i do not watch a lot of k-dramas at all like i watched squid game because everyone on the planet was watching it i thought it was very good but this is not an area I'm familiar with. I've seen a bunch of films, obviously, but not television. And so I, too, was kind of like, I feel like there's some cultural stuff that I'm maybe not picking up on in terms of like the weirdness. But it was pretty clear that it was just very weird. And I found that, and like we'll get into more of the specifics as opposed to just being like, this show is weird <laughs> in a minute. But I found it at certain points a little bit frustrating or alienating because, as you say, the show really doesn't explain anything. And there are certain like character beats that kind of get skipped over because of that lack of explanation. And I don't think any of the characters are drawn that specifically because it's more focused on just like this bizarre world building. But I also really admired the panache of just being like, we're just doing this thing and it's going to be fun. And yeah. The fact that it does move so quickly, even though it does sacrifice some character stuff, I think gives it a lot of propulsion. And so you're kind of just along for the ride. And like, I think you were tweeting that like, you cannot possibly predict anything that happens in the show. Like just random shit happens like every 15 minutes. And you're like, okay, here's another one. Yeah, I just appreciate when something is really going for it. And I think the like bones of the show in terms of plot are strong enough that even if it doesn't always succeed in what it's doing it still remains like fundamentally really entertaining and the weirdness is like a nice like spice on top of that so the aesthetic is really fun it's set in just like a contemporary high school um, one thing i find quite interesting is like everyone looks quite normal in this show and have their natural skin and hair which is not the case for 
a lot of TV in Korea. <laughs> There's a lot of kind of airbrushing going on. Um, and I was like, oh, interesting, some real teens. But like the world building, as Morgan mentioned, is like, ex- there's loads of like really cool CGI beasties. And these jellies, they basically look like candy. Like jelly candy is just sort of blobbing around and there'll be like a little squid that's just like walking up the wall somewhere. And sometimes it gets like a lot more alarming. And the author of these novels kind of describes this protagonist, the school nurse, as like an exorcist, which is more or less what she's doing. But like for the first half of episode one, I was like, you can definitely read this as just like a comedy drama about someone who like maybe has schizophrenia <laughs> or is just like yeah. hallucinating. Because like the whole point is it's one of these stories where like she is the only person who can see all these creatures, which are all sort of metaphors for the emotional conflicts of like the characters which of course because it's like a high school everyone is like under loads of pressure and like going through puberty and stuff so there's loads of wild kind of things to spawn a jelly but then like it's pretty clear early on that like yeah she has supernatural powers and one of the main ways she combats these jellies is she just has this like light up plastic toy sword that she'll like bonk people on the head with and that like resolves the issue <laughs> just like really peculiar the thing that's just like extremely wild about episode one and absolutely like makes you keep watching is that, you know, for the first kind of half of this episode, you ha- they're introducing this quite out there concept to do with like the jellies and the plastic sword and what have you. And um, they also introduce the secondary lead who is a male teacher who is kind of her pal and like maybe her love interest, but it's sort of an ambiguous sidekick role. And he has like a disability from an injury. He has like a limp. Uh, which is like pretty unusual for like a love interest uh, protagonist character. It's like an actor who usually plays quite athletic roles. So I think they kind of cast that intentionally. But like they together like go into the basement to investigate the source of why some characters, like some teenagers are behaving weirdly. And they find supernatural kind of message telling them that like the school is built on this place where like people used to kill themselves over lost love so there's all this like negative energy there and the episode culminates in all of these teenagers trying to fling themselves off the roof in hysteria and then this gigantic cgi frog monster emerges from like a crack in the pavement and then she like defeats it by shooting it with a bb gun or whatever so it's like it's nothing like the sort of heroic fantasy war stuff that you're used to seeing in pop culture and it's all very strange and almost like watching children's television like it reminded me a lot of saturday morning tv and then it'll just get like really dark so it is clearly a show for adults there's just a really unusual kind of range of tones going on which i think is perhaps the reason why this show has not caught on as like a big mainstream hit here because it's just like very unexpected and hard to uh pigeonhole well right you've got the aesthetics of like her with this children's toy defeating these creatures and then the sight of all of these teenagers frantically trying to jump off a building in a state of mass hysteria which is i mean it's very funny but like it's (laughs) you couldn't show that to like a 10 year old because they'd just be like what is happening like i i don't like this right and i think well two things one about the cgi The, like, frog monster that comes out of the ground is the one thing that looks kind of like a video game character from, like, 10 to 15 years ago. Like, it's it's pretty creaky. But the CGI of the smaller creatures or, like, substances that she's observing is, I think, really good. Obviously, they all look fake, but that's fine. In terms of just, like, the design and the execution, everything just looks so gross. (laughs) 
Well, I was like, I was like, oh, they found a way to do a TV drama about the slime craze because teens fucking love slime. (laughs) There are some cute creatures in the third episode. I think there are like little squids kind of going around at one point that are very cute. But almost everything looks incredibly gross in a kind of satisfying way. Whether or not it's like an evil creature or like two kids who are dating for the first time and their hands come apart and there's like goo between them because they're in love. That also looks super gross. Like it's not, all of it is just kind of nasty. And um, it's not that there's no sentimentality in the show because when she defeats the big monsters, like they literally burst into little gooey hearts. But, But there is this kind of reveling in the weirdness and grossness of the aesthetic pitch that they've thrown to the audience, right? And all the creatures look so distinct or like the sort of substances look so distinct that that alone is a large part of what makes the show engaging. And then also this main character, I just think she's so weird. She is bizarre. She's just completely ludicrous in a way that is really fun to watch. So her performance is like quite flat and she's usually frowning. And by and large, she moves really slowly. There's loads of scenes where she'd just be having a conversation while walking really slowly. And at the same time, she's like aggressively quirky because her whole concept is she's locked in like a secret supernatural battle with all these little jelly monsters, which at like at first is like quite hard to get your brain around because of the fact that like she there's no narrative uh, requirement for her to explain what's going on to her new sidekick. So like one episode, he's like, I don't know what's going on. And you're acting really weird. And then the next episode, he's just like accepted this is what's happening and is helping her save the school from jellies. <laughs> Bit of a stretch there, yes. Yeah, <laughs> but like she does feel really distinctive. I like that she has like a really specific fashion sense, which is always something I enjoy in television. Um, and I did read a K-drama review that was like, oh, she's perfect for the role having read the book. And I'm like, well, I will just accept that that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what you were saying before about the... I don't know, cliche or trope about this kind of story in terms of like, I don't know, fantasy or supernatural storytelling and like fighting and defeating the monster and that what this show is doing is quite different. I think that's both true and not true, right? Because in terms of like the basic structure of the story, there's a big monster and someone repeatedly has to defeat it. So like that is familiar. I mean, the like, in the first episode, there literally is an enormous monster that she has to defeat. And then like other problems come up that are kind of different manifestations of that concept. But I think part of the reason the show succeeds is that even if the way that problem is manifesting is perhaps quite unusual, like the basic plot is still like the good guy has to defeat the bad guy. And there's like a supernatural thing that she has to quench, which like if you like fantasy at all, is something that you will have come across many times. But she is so, um, it's not that she's non-heroic because she's really going after it in like an aggressive and pretty unhesitating way. But I think there's a lot of interesting gender stuff going on with her because it's not that she's like unfeminine exactly, but she's not as stereotypically feminine as some of the other female adult characters in the show who are pretty peripheral up to the third episode, which is what I watched. And the sort of cliched ideas of like feminine heroism don't necessarily play into what she's doing as much but she's also not like a tomboy and one of my favorite scenes in the show is like 
we've gone in with her to the basement in that first episode and she's like killing all of these like horrifying gross monsters and then her to be friend this other male school teacher follows her down we see her from his perspective which is just like her wildly swinging this children's toy around at the air and it just looks totally ludicrous and the actress is completely going for it like she has absolutely committed to just like yeah i'm in seems great i will act ludicrous and that sense of sort of absurdity the show is clearly really enjoying that as well and yet it also takes the like the threat of the bad jellies like very seriously too and just like i don't know the combination of all of this stuff it just works like it's just entertaining to watch i think I mean, I looked up some interviews with the author to kind of get a bit more background here. She kind of emphasized the theme of like selflessness and charity, like in the way that she's framing the heroism. So like this author says, the main character protects her students without seeking any money or honor in return. It's the story of one grown-up's charitable goodwill toward minors. And she also said like in another interview, the kind of theme of altruism was like central to the story. And she also said, I wanted to write an experimental story by grafting literary and social themes onto a work of genre fiction in a style that had a different gravity to it. And to spring this story onto the conservative Korean literary establishment. And then she kind of says like, she was pleasantly surprised by how successful the book was. I'm like, it's kind of intriguing. Like it sounds like she's like going at this from like quite an experimental viewpoint, which then does come through in the show. But it also made me think of there's not a really obvious kind of villain from the start of the show, but there is an antagonist who's there for like two or three episodes, who's this other teacher named Mackenzie, who's like an American Korean character. And like kind of the thematic like difference between him and the good guys is that he is just like really selfish and driven by commercial goals. And he also is like someone who can see these jellies. And they sort of gradually introduce the idea that like he is trying to kind of farm them, almost dealing in jellies like a drug dealer with some of the students. So like it's in the same sort of framework as like you'd expect in a high school scenario. It's not like I'm going to take over the world, but it's this obvious sort of thematic opposition to the idea of just this nurse who wants to help people and is just like not bothered about personal gain. And that kind of fits in with the fact that like all of the monsters in this are completely tied up in just like metaphors. They're not even like, oh, this vampire is a metaphor. It's like, no, this creature is literally just like a representation of someone's trauma or like someone's horniness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I don't know how far, I guess you watched one more episode than I did. And I don't know how much this, how much further this gets into it, but like the male teacher is the grandson of the man who founded the school. And there's this like ominous oil portrait of him, like overlooking <laughs> the students as they walk through the hall. And clearly there's some story behind that, that I have a feeling has to do with some corrupt commercial enterprise in terms of founding the school. I was really interested in the idea of this sort of foil character to her being someone who was harvesting these creatures and monetizing them love that it's an American character, even though the actor did not sound American to me. Um, but uh, like, of course, we suck. And that really fits into this like dominant theme of the big hits that have come out of Korea and broken out internationally recently, which is like this focus on like the evils of capitalism, right? Which is obviously not the only concern in Korean film and television right now, but is definitely a major one and in art all over the world. But 
I think one of the things that is unusual about this protagonist character, one of the things that makes her seem a bit odd, is that she really has no desires for herself, except like this kind of crush on this teacher, which clearly makes her uncomfortable. She doesn't want to talk about it. And that's not how protagonists in fiction are supposed to work, right? When they teach you screenwriting, it's all about like, well, what do the characters want? And obviously with this character, like the answer would be, well, she wants to protect the school. And that's part of, I mean, it's the central thing that's driving the show and it totally functions from a narrative perspective. But that's very unusual in terms of writing a story because people are very selfish. And even if like, we all do have like altruistic, like wants as well, but there really isn't very much that she wants for herself. And we don't know very much about her personal life. Like she has one friend who she's had for a year and they basically just talk about her school problems. (laughs) And when you contrast that with the students who are all completely self-obsessed because they're teenagers, right? There's like a strong contrast. I really like the students. There's a lot of fun teens in this. There's a teenage girl who's like always hanging out at the nurse's office who I like. And there's this one like really bizarre subplot where they have to um they have to like figure out why this there's like this boy and girl who both have this sort of jelly connection and they're trying to resolve it. And for some reason they've like figured out that it's got something to do with their hair. So like the first step is this girl who's pals with the nurse flirts with this teenage boy to persuade him to shave his own head and they're like damn it doesn't work we're gonna have to like kidnap them and sedate them and like inspect their underarm hair to find out like what the hair connection is and I was like wow this is this is a new one for me (laughs) yeah that was the moment where I was like I feel like this has not been explained to me enough like I would just like a little more of how you got here it's like her friend so her friend is an acupuncturist and also clearly has some connection to like the spiritual world and so like gets what she's doing and her friend is like oh it's because they have curly hair and like the jellies like that because they can like attach to it somehow i don't know and then her other friend the teacher is like well obviously we need to tie their hair that's the only thing that will work and they're like well if that doesn't work with the armpits then we're gonna have to give them a bikini wax there's no alternative and i was like i just feel like it's like this is some real dream logic yes exactly like you've you jumped from A to Y without really going to the other steps in between. And they don't actually show any of the, like, tying the underarm hair because how could you, what? But I just kept thinking, like, okay, number one, does the girl have any underarm hair? Would she perhaps have shaved it? I guess they're not even going to introduce that question. And also, would they get home and look at their armpits and be like, what the fuck has happened here? Like, Again, questions that don't get introduced and we really shouldn't even be asking because not what this show is interested in at all. And that's fine. But that gives you an idea of like what level this is working on, I think. There's a really great character who shows up in the episode after where you stopped off where they introduce this new student. And at first you're like, oh, she's one of the ones who can see jellies because she's introduced as like eating this little squid that like just plucks it off the wall and eats it, which is like delightfully gross. And then she goes into the school nurse's office and it's like, what you've got to understand is that I am a mite eater. I'm here to eat mites. I was bored this week because when you get a bunch of mites somewhere, the universe just like generates a mite eater. Um, so that's me. I was just born. FYI, I've never been a girl before. I was always a boy. So this person has shown up and she's like, well, I'm non-binary and I've transitioned and I'm immortal and I was born yesterday. And then she gets a lesbian subplot. And I was like, this is incredible. I'm loving it. <laughs> 
this is the only character who has like a fandom presence because like I went on TikTok to be like, okay, this seems like the kind of show where there's going to be like teens on TikTok who are discussing it. Um, the answer is no, because just the show has not really caught on in the West. <laughs> but like the one character who got a bit of content was the Mighty Tur and her girlfriend. I almost don't even know what to say in response to that description of a character. She's here to eat bugs. <laughs> well, I also am glad to hear that because one of my only sort of substantial critiques, aside from just like, this doesn't really totally make sense, was that all of the sort of like pairing off of the teens were heterosexual. So it's nice to hear that there's a weird lesbian situation in the future episodes. <laughs> I mean, like a lot of teen shows, this does have a lot of ongoing themes to do with conformity and being an outcast. And the main characters are all people who are sort of rejected or seen as weird by their peer group. Like obviously the main character for obvious reasons. And then her love interest has a disability. Something like the author mentioned as well in one of the interviews. She said, I've always been dissatisfied by how media representations of disabled people define them by their disabilities. So kind of, she wanted this to be like an element of the character, but not to be sort of like defining trait. But then like all of the teenagers who are sort of on the good side <laughs> are all like rejected in some way. And then you've got your classic sort of sporty bullies. I really liked in the first episode, prior to the big frog monster showing up, one of the main subplots is that there's this asshole jock guy who's trying to set up this like really high pressure, intensely theatrical public date asking out promposal style event to try and get this girl to go out with him. <laughs> and in the end, this other guy gets her to go out with him instead just by being emotionally vulnerable, which is like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found that very funny and though over the top, true to life. I mean, that kind of stuff wasn't really happening when we were in high school. At least I can speak for my own high school. There was sort of large behavior occasionally, but the promposal stuff really has taken it to a new level. But again, it's like very over the top in the show, but the feeling of this being like a school-wide event felt so real to yeah. me. That like everyone knows this is happening and this like group of assholes has kind of co-opted like the entire school's presence because they feel like they're the center of the universe. So of course everyone should deeply care about this one jerk setting up candle. Well, he's not setting up the candles on the ground. His minions are doing that. And it does not even begin to occur to him that she might say no, because like, why would that ever happen? Right? Like impossible. Yeah. That just, it just felt very real to me. I sat next to some really obnoxious teenage boys in the subway yesterday. Or I should say they sat down next to me because I would not have voluntarily sat down next to a bunch of maskless teenage boys on the subway. And um, really reminded me that uh, they can be very dumb. They were just so obnoxious. And I was like, right, these people do exist. And uh, the characters in the show are kind of cliches, but I was like, you know what? It's not wrong. <laughs> like, seems about right to me. And the kid they're kind of bullying, who's the one who, who does wind up going out with this girl based on the three episodes that I saw I think they do a pretty good job with him too it's not that again any of these people are particularly complex but the way the tropes are done I think is pretty good because he's this poor kid he gets mocked and bullied for that he's on the basketball team with them um but he clearly doesn't have the like social position that in many schools would come from being on a sports team because of the like money issue and they're all kind of in this click together and 
he like wants to be, but they're just bullying him. And so in some senses, he is very sympathetic because we see that he's vulnerable. He's obviously less of an asshole than these guys. And like this nice girl likes him, but he's susceptible to then behaving badly himself because he so desperately wants to kind of get one over on them. And he wants to play on the basketball team and kind of gets kicked off of it. So like he kind of is in this like ambiguous middle place, which most of the students aren't. Most of them are either just like assholes or are sympathetic. And again, it's not that the writing is like massively deep, but it's done in a smart enough like teen drama way that I thought that that was was good. I generally found the adults more enjoyable than the teenagers, but I think I often do. <laughs> in these shows and that like the teenagers are kind of there to make the adults give the adults yeah. what to do i mean so. it's definitely a show that i'm sure is like watched by teens mm. but it's very much a show where like the protagonist is in her 30s like that yeah. is the point of view character and you are like the story is definitely from the perspective of like the older spectator in this school of teens because i don't think it does like a good job of kind of illustrating the high pressure environment of the school and like how weird it is to be a teenager, but it's all like spectating all these teens like getting stuck together by slime or whatever, rather than like getting that first person perspective of just like freaking out and having like all the emotional intensity. Yeah, I mean, the very concept, as you say, of like her being able to see all these like slime creatures like sticking these kids together. That's just a would... metaphor for working at a high school. <laughs> Yeah, like, the American guy asks her in the third episode, I think, like, why do you work at the school? Like, do you like it? And she's like, no one likes school. Like, this is <laughs> Which, of course, many teachers do like their jobs. But, like, I liked that she was like, no. Like, that's not... I'm not just, like, having a great time. And as the nurse, it's not... Like, the great things about being a teacher are the, like, emotional connections that you get to have with the students, Right. But if you're the nurse, you don't really get that because you're not like with them every day. You just get to see them when they come in because they've hurt themselves or they're sick or whatever. Like it's, you know, I'm sure that people who do that job, I mean, I'm sure right now it's horrible, but like that there is emotional gratification from like making people feel better, but it's not the same thing as like getting to like talk to these kids every single day and like building that relationship with them. And so she's kind of just like, yeah, it kind of sucks. Like. Which adds to the sense of it being an altruistic act, right? Obviously, all teachers are doing that. But in her case, she's really just like, well, I just also gotta be... Also, like this... kind of a boring job because it's basically just like waiting around all day to see if someone skins their knee or whatever. So it's like, yeah. you've got a lot of free time to defeat jellies. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah, the school librarian in Buffy. It's like, yeah, this job does involve a lot of like sitting around. Yeah. And like, the... School seems to be, like Buffy, on, like, a hot spot. Uh, just, like, all the jellies are just happening right here. So she's got her work cut out for her. Yeah. I think we should talk a bit about, like, Korea, like, Netflix's push for Korean dramas. But before we say that, I just want to say one other thing I really liked is, like, this uh, school, which is run by, like, the creepy old man in the paintings, as Morgan said. They begin every day by doing calisthenics and then forced laughter just to kind of emphasize the whole concept of being in like a horrible like emotional melting pot of high pressure exam stress and being forced to fake laugh <laughs> and i was like okay good detail yeah yeah them like punching their own armpits i was just like this, is, this doesn't seem fun to me personally but 
but yes. Well, I mean, Netflix's international push over the whole world has obviously been huge the past several years, but specifically yeah. in Korea, it's been super huge. They simultaneously are like, obviously they want a significant foothold in the TV industry in Korea, which is like very influential. And also they know that it's a country whose media output is also kind of popular internationally. Cause like there's a lot of countries where like their internal TV and movies don't spread that far to other places. Whereas in Korea, obviously there's a lot of big Korean movies that are like popular internationally. There is like a significant subculture of K-drama fans, particularly in the US, which is obviously Netflix's like central market. Over the past couple of years, they've really heavily ramped up, not just licensing, but like there's loads of kind of Korean Netflix originals. And like, obviously Squid Game is the one that really became this huge A-list hit. It's like the biggest show Netflix has ever made, allegedly, according to like whatever their fake ass streaming stats are like great show it's fantastic i think uh, it probably is given the like the yeah. google results and the cultural reach yeah 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 partly word of mouth but like the amount of pr that went into that initially in asia as particularly was like so much all these like physical installations in shopping malls and train stations and like people promoting it in costume and stuff like I mean, obviously we all know that like Netflix is not a profitable enterprise. They pour so much money into stuff and then like the amount of money they get back is very nebulous. Their income comes from investors rather than the actual money that we, the subscribers are paying to them. But like Godspeed if you want to fund some actually good shows. So like over the past couple of years, there's been like an influx of big budget prestige K-dramas. Whereas I think this is like not the sort of show they're going to publicize internationally because it, like, it's much more rooted in uh, kind of the original Korean setting and audience. And it's based in a book which is like not being translated into English. So it's kind of interesting to look at that from the perspective of which stuff is being created by Netflix for like local markets and which stuff is being pushed really heavily for like international viewership. Well, I would be so interested to see like the internal marketing information and all their metrics and what have you about Squid Game because I know that they did all the PR in Asia and then I'm sure that that like bleeds over into it then kind of like bubbling up over yeah. here right but I did not see any it was definitely like PR. word of mouth for US right. audiences first exactly. right and I think also a lot of it comes through like because there's so much international K-pop fandom once you have the promotional crossover where there's like BTS is like tweeting about Squid Game. Yeah. You know? <laughs> because I definitely got the impression that Netflix was not that I'm like in meetings, but like that that was a surprise to them that that became yeah. such yeah. a huge hit here. They were like, we know this is going to be huge in Korea and like in the Philippines and in various other places in Asia. And they were like, oh, okay, this is also a hit in the US. And it's like, yeah, because it's really good. And also, it's like really visually colorful, which is extremely rare <laughs> for adult dramas <laughs> in the US. Well, and I mean, obviously that Bong Juno quotation that goes around like once a month, but is so relevant to that too. Like when he was talking about Parasite and trying to make a really specific Korean film, and then it was received the same in every country that he took it to around the world because like capitalism is eating everything, right? And that obviously was the case with that show too. But in terms of the less massively popular things they've made, including this show, we have complained a lot about them not adequately promoting things. I don't think it's like a problem that they're not like promoting this show like crazy in America, like it's fine. But I do think it's really fascinating to think about the volume of stuff that is on there that just like no one knows. It's it's just 
sitting there. Yeah. I mean, it's really wild as a TV critic because like every kind of month at work, we look through the kind of upcoming releases on various streaming services. And obviously I work at the Daily Dot. It's not like a 100% entertainment media company. So there's only a certain amount of bandwidth to review a certain amount of shows from each streaming service. And with Netflix, I will typically kind of veer towards sci-fi fantasy stuff. And there are like so many shows I've reviewed where I'm sure that like no one watched them. <laughs> yeah. Or like they're not good at all and like a bunch of money's being spent on them. This year I watched like, I think it was maybe Netflix's like first original Icelandic show. And it was really pretty good. Like it was a Icelandic supernatural horror crime thriller. So it's like very much in the sort of general wheelhouse of Scandinavian noir, which is very popular internationally. But I was like, no one's heard of this show. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sure you told me about it. It's just gone from my brain. And then obviously you get like all the stuff like Cowboy Bebop, which is just dross that they've clearly spent a lot of money on and it's just like nonsense. Well, and it's also obviously like before Netflix and still now, most countries' cultural product does not get exported all over the world. And like, we don't get it in America, right? So it's not as though everyone has access to everything and everything gets promoted at the same level. Like, that's just not how it works. Most countries, in terms of like the films they make, if they get one thing that gets submitted to the Oscars, maybe it gets released in America and gets some publicity. And that's a maybe. Like, most of those films don't get any attention at all. So there's only so much attention that we have. Like, it's just not possible but the politics of what does get that attention and like how that does get decided i think is really interesting in a toxic way because it's usually bad not to say that many very deserving and great things don't get pushed like in terms of the movies this year plenty of international stuff is getting attention that's really wonderful but the whole ecosystem is broken and like netflix specifically is bad because their whole bottle is just like let's just shove as much stuff on here as is humanly yeah, possible the famous right? fire hose of content where it's like there's loads of shows that would be completely dominant in pop culture if they released one episode a week like bridgerton which obviously is like one of their top titles if they had released one episode of bridgerton a week like yeah there would have been continual discourse but also it would have been absolutely huge it would have been like game of thrones big And there's definitely been, like, other shows on Netflix that are like that. And, like, it doesn't happen. Because, like, if they start releasing stuff one by one, then, like, viewers will just be paying attention to that and won't be, like, marathoning other shows. And they want people to just watch six episodes of a show in one go, which in turn motivates them to make shows that are, like, extremely easy to engage with emotionally and require, like, no intellectual capacity. So, like, the ideal Netflix show is something that's, like, just quite boring Or it's like The Witcher, where it's like, you basically are not going to feel anything unless you've done a lot of emotional work to be deeply invested in, like, Henry Cavill's wooden face. (laughs) (laughs) Right, and that's why all the shows are too long. Because they just want you to keep clicking the next thing. But to bring it back to the show that we are talking about on this episode, I mean, I think this is a really interesting example because it's not something that I watch it and I'm like, it's a crime that this wasn't, like, talked about all the time in America. Like, Like, it's fun. It's not a masterpiece. But it's also something that I feel like, even though there are definitely certain elements that are, like, culturally specific that, like, an American audience probably wouldn't totally get, like, myself included, I think a lot of American teenagers would totally find this really fun, especially people who watch a bunch of K-dramas, right? Like, and so 
the fact that, again, it all just gets buried, I kind of wish they were just better at, I don't know, organizing all of this stuff and like presenting it in a manner that was more coherent so that we could just understand what exists on there more, right? As opposed to I just, mean, like, God knows we all wish that Netflix had like an AO3 level tagging system for God, like content I know, and right? themes. And <laughs> because it is like, their big movies that come out will get one week of being like the big thing at the top of the page. And then Godspeed to you ever finding them again, because they just vanish into the big morass of stuff in there, right? Like it's, I've had to search hard for really big, like Oscar play movies that I had to like put in the whole title in the search bar because I knew what I was looking for. And I was like, what, what are you doing? I mean, don't you know that you ought to be just watching Red Notice? Oh my God. The hottest film in the world. That 400 million people have watched 10 minutes off while ironing before turning off in disgust. <laughs> yeah. It's very depressing. I find it very depressing. I mean, that's why we're glad to have fun Patreon subscribers who recommend unusual and uh, obscure items for us to review. I wouldn't say that like I loved this show. I didn't really continue beyond what I was watching for review purposes, but it was kind of pleasingly unusual. And I'm glad we watched it. So yeah. Yeah, I... I'd love to know if literally any of our listeners have watched this. Like, occasionally we will review something and I'm like, I feel like of like the kind of couple of thousand people who listen to this show on a regular basis, it's possible that only the Patreon requester has uh, has watched it. <laughs> Seriously, like, please tell us because I am really curious. And yes. <laughs> I also like liked but didn't love this. But if you're the sort of person who likes shows like this, be they from Korea or America, like wherever else, you should totally turn it on because if this is your thing... I feel like you will have a fun time watching this. And it will be so weird that you will be like, well, that was interesting. Like, I wasn't expecting all those things to happen, you know? Yeah, totally a diverting few hours spent with these people, um, which is all you can really ask of entertainment. So here's us telling you to go watch something on Netflix, the company we have just shat upon for the past 15 minutes. Uh... But yeah, thank you so much to Nicole for requesting this. This was a really fun one. Um, as you just said, I I always really like when someone recommends something where I'm like, I've literally never heard of that. No idea. Always a gamble, but this was really fun. So next week, we will be kicking off our sort of series of holiday programming. And by that, I mean no movies that actually have to do with Christmas, but that feel Christmassy to us. Starting off with The Force Awakens, which is the only Star Wars film from the most recent trilogy that we have not talked about, which I believe is the reason it was requested, um, this is Patreon request, which I think will be very interesting to discuss because I have completely soured on, like, Disney, all franchise stuff, like, I'm just foaming at the mouth with bitterness, but I have seen this movie many times, I love it, and seeing it in the theater was a magical experience. So I'm hoping that I can like- I love The Force Awakens. I love Star Wars. And it's just been very easy for me to just like forget that The Rise of Skywalker even exists. I'm like, it's truly gone. I don't even care. Goodbye. I'm going to try to purge myself of some of my like rage at- The dark side. Corporations. Yep. (laughs) To talk about this wonderful film, I think. So we're going to do that. And then I'm going to keep- a secret the movie we're going to do after the week after that because it's so entertaining that I just am going to keep everyone in suspense for a little longer. Yeah. But you will and all And then laugh. we're going to do... Our last episode of the year will be 
The Matrix, the new Matrix film, Matrix Resurrections, which God knows I'm looking forward to. It's going to be very exciting. Yes. Should be a lot of fun. I have not seen the two Matrix sequels and I am not planning on seeing them. So I will read some Wikipedia pages and... I mean, that's fine. I know. I know about The Matrix. I know about the Wachowskis. I'm good to go. Yeah. (laughs) As I did all the talking on our Wuthering Heights episode, I am ready to let you take the stage. For the Matrix, so it's all good. But yes, if you would like to request an episode or listen to our recent mini-sode on Princess Mononoke, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, where I recently reviewed the K-drama Hellbound, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.